Well, Acts chapter 28, the very last one. We finish up the book of Acts today. Um, I mentioned last week, I was going back and looking at my notes, this will be our 32nd week in the book of Acts, which is by far at this point the longest study that we've done. I think the closest was something like 25, something like that. Um, I should probably start by saying thank you. <laughs> it's, uh, it really is an incredible gift as a pastor. I know so many pastors I interact with that kind of the, the stamina or pace for their con- congregation is four to eight week sermon series. That's kind of, and then on to a new topic. So to be able to have a congregation that'll spend 32 weeks working through a passage and, uh, and to still be finding joy in it and lessons in it and to be interested in it is really a gift for me as your pastor. Um, but I'm also thankful for all of the ways that Acts has spoken to me personally. I know so many of you have come up to me after services or midweek, after women's conversations and groups or our men's discussions. Um, I've heard firsthand just how much hearing these stories of Paul in the early church has challenged and changed your perspective and shaped the way that you think about what God is doing in our own church and our own life. And I found the same to be true for me as well. Acts really has been an important book as we've spent so much time in it. So much of the Bible that we've been looking at is written to a world that so often can feel different than the one that we live in. I think back to the times we spent uh, weeks and long series through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. And it's easy during some of those to think that these are, these are really quite different stories than the ones we live in. Still interesting, still much to learn, but such a different world. The Gospels, we spent time in the Gospel of, of Mark a couple years ago. Obviously, they're powerful stories about Christ, but we look at our own world and recognize how different it is living after the resurrection, after the ascension, and Christ walking here amongst us. But the truth is we live very much in the world of Acts, and that's one of the things that struck me as we've worked through the story. The book of Acts is really very much the story of the church in the time we live in, this place that we find ourselves a pagan culture around us, the constant challenges and frustrations of trying to live out and continue Jesus' work, communities of believers gathered together in homes and meeting rooms and prayer, a passion to preach and to pass on the thing that they had received, the difficulty of watching that message be rejected by some and the joy of seeing it take root in new lives, and all of it lived in this hope, this anticipation of Christ's return of a coming resurrection. Uh, Not only has this series in the book of Acts been long, but the book of Acts itself is a long book. It's actually one of the longest books in the New Testament. Technically, Matthew, Luke, and Acts are all almost exactly the same length. The three of them make up the longest books. But you also remember that Luke and Acts were originally intended to be read together. They're sort of two volumes of one work. So if you take those two books together... This is an incredibly long section of scripture, the gospel of Luke on through the stories of Acts. Imagine being a reader who sat down, having received these two volumes and starting the gospel of Luke chapter one, verse one, and working your way through Acts chapter 28, verse 31. It's a massive work that spans across several decades with cast members popping up all over the entire Roman empire. I started this week as I was thinking about how we end the book of Acts, reflecting back on how Luke began the story, how far this story had come from Luke's opening scene in his gospel, a lone priest named Zechariah with a barren wife, both of them late in life, received the miraculous revelation that they would have a son whose name would be John, and that he would prepare Israel for the coming of the Messiah they had for so long anticipated. 
Zechariah, rightfully so, as we probably would too, struggled to believe that prophecy a little bit. And because of it, he was made mute for nine months. He would not speak again until this son was in fact born. And in that moment, the son in his arms, he had a burst of speech and Zechariah would declare, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. The beginning of this story, Luke chapter 1, Christ's coming, Israel prepared for it. I think about all the ways that story has now unfolded. Most people believe Paul is probably arriving in Rome, this last scene of Acts, somewhere around the year 60 AD. Six decades this story has been unfolding through Luke and through Acts. Halfway through the story, we witness Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And the movement at that point had basically built to 12 disciples and a handful of followers, all of who were too terrified to stand with Jesus but fled and found themselves together after his death, terrified, only to receive him resurrected and handed the commission, go into all the world, preach what you've seen, what you've received from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth as Acts opens. Here now, at the end of Acts, we find Christ's followers, no longer a select handful trying to figure out how they go about that task, but now followers in the thousands scattered all over the entire Roman world, from Israel to Asia to Greece to Rome itself. Paul has been our companion for most of this passage, these stories, discovering all of these believers spread across the Roman Empire. And the sheer scale of this story pulls us into categories that are bigger than just the life of Paul. One of the things you conclude by the end of Acts is though so much of this book is about Paul, this is hardly just Paul's story. As we've seen from the beginning, this is the story of God. This is how Christ's kingdom was spreading throughout the world. How he would fulfill that promise that his gospel would be preached to the ends of the earth. It's the story of how the Holy Spirit began to invade cities and governments, began to establish new rule amongst people, a heavenly rule. How the Holy Spirit carved out new places amongst new people and formed citizens of a new kingdom. As we come to the final chapter, one of the things you can feel as we work our way to chapter 28 is the end coming closer and closer. For a long time, we've been anticipating Paul's arrival in Rome. It's back several chapters before this that Paul decided he would go to Jerusalem, but ultimately end up in Rome. We've experienced the long and difficult journey in Paul getting there. Last week, you'll remember the shipwrecks, the storm at sea, the time spent on the island of Malta. As Paul's ship finally set anchor along the coast of Italy, and he made those final few mile treks to Rome itself, You can feel the fulfillment of so much of the book of Acts finally coming towards its resolution. As Paul turns to walk those miles into the city, the capital of Rome, it unfolds for us with all of the anticipation and the drama that so much of this story has had. Paul, the great missionary, taking the gospel to Rome, possibly before Caesar himself, And so how, after so much drama, so much anticipation and excitement, shipwrecks and beatings, distances across Roman roads, riots in city after city, how does Luke choose to conclude this massive two-volume Luke-Acts work? Well, that's what we get to read today. Acts chapter 28, 
I'm going to start in verse 11 and read through the end of the chapter. It feels like a big accomplishment. We've read every word of the book of Acts together. That might not seem like a lot for you, but having had to read all of it to you, it seems like a pretty big achievement. (laughs) Acts chapter 28, verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that was wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Petoli. There, we found brothers, and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when he came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letter from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The end of the book of Acts. The story goes that after three months of wintering on the island of Malta, the weather finally cleared up enough that Paul, along with his captors, could find a new ship and set sail north towards the peninsula of Italy. Their ship is an Alexandrian vessel described as having carved on the bow and the stern of the ship the twin gods, these two mythical features in Roman history. It's a reminder that Paul's destination is the center of the pagan world. And also it's a reminder that no carved god would spare them from the storm. This sort of irony that Paul is now carried on a Roman ship protected by pagan gods, but knowing full well that it's his god, the invisible one, that truly carries him to his destination. 
that moves him safely to the final point of Rome. The twin pagan gods may carry him physically to Rome, but we know full well that what really moves Paul to that city is the spirit, a far greater God. Landing on the coast of Italy, Paul was greeted by Christians there, by believers who allowed him to rest seven days before he and those that are traveling with him make the 100-mile trek north to the city of Rome. And again, as Paul approached the city of Rome, we read the believers from the city, Christians living in Rome, came out to welcome him and to escort him into the city. It's a remarkable scene because this is not the sort of typical thing that happens when a prisoner gets brought into a city. What's narrated here is more the example of how an emperor would return home from a triumphant conquest or a victory. The people of the city would come out to welcome the ruler, the king, and bring him into the city. And here, too, something similar happens. The Christians come out and greet and welcome Paul in chains, imagine the scene, and walk with him in joy and excitement back into the city of Rome. I can imagine it made probably quite the impression on the Roman troops who were guarding Paul. Who in the world is this man in chains that people would come out of the city to welcome him and receive him and walk with him back in? Who's this man that he would have so much respect and gratitude even as he enters as a criminal? But Paul was apparently allowed to rent a home. He was placed in a kind of house arrest. We know because he tells those Jews that came to hear his teaching that he was wearing a chain. And we're also told that there is a single guard who lives with him in this house to make sure that he stays put. But it seems to be some sort of an arranged house arrest. Paul is allowed his own house. He can rent the house at his own expense and live wherever he would like so long as he stays put until eventually there is this trial that will play out. Uh, Compared to the accommodations that he probably would have had in a jail cell in Jerusalem, this actually wasn't too bad of a setup. Uh, He has to stay there, and he has to live with a Roman soldier. But beyond that, he can welcome guests into his house. He can teach freely and openly in his own home. He can write letters and send for messengers to take that message around. In fact, Paul will write some important letters from his time here. And so the first thing Paul does when he arrives and sets up this new house is call together Jewish leaders from the city of Rome. We know at this time that Rome would have had several synagogues. It was actually a place where many Jews lived. And he called together the leaders of these synagogues to be able to explain why he had arrived and a little bit about himself. He begins to explain who he is and why he's been brought there on charges. And he specifically points out that he has nothing against Israel for all of this. And so the first thing he does is try to explain to them the situation, the context. These Jews surprisingly admit that they know nothing about Paul, which is surprising considering how much opposition he's faced everywhere else he's gone in his travels. But here, the leaders say that no one has warned them about Paul. No one's spoken badly or evilly of him. No one coming from Judea has even brought him up at all. Rome turns out to be a kind of fresh start for Paul, which is a little bit surprising, a place where he seems to be unknown. Their lack of knowledge makes him feel almost safe to be able to go on further explaining and attempting to persuade them to believe. They do know about the sect of Christians, though, that Paul is from. Maybe part of what has them interested in Paul is that Paul, as they know, is a highly educated Pharisee from Jerusalem who also now counts himself as one of the believers of this sect that they keep hearing about. So they're interested to hear Paul's take on Christianity, to explain to them how it's directly related to the the, uh, Jewish faith that they practice and know from Jerusalem. 
they end up coming back multiple times, initially receiving Paul, but then coming back with more in their presence and spending an entire day listening to Paul try to explain the relationship between Christianity and Judaism. Unfortunately, only a few of them choose to believe. The vast majority of them choose not to. This tension, Paul's relationship with the Jews, the Jewish establishment and leaders, has been one of the big themes that's central to the book of Acts. Paul continues to try to reach out to those who are of his faith family, his Jewish background, and so often they're the ones who have been most hostile to him. Paul here leaves one of the last impressions of this conflict, specifically pointing out that though he suffered so much at the hands of these Jews, he has no charge against them, speaks no evil against them, has nothing he condemns them for, but rather continues to plead that they would believe and receive the Messiah that he has. Paul doesn't have hostility towards them, and here in Rome at least, there doesn't seem to be much hostility back towards Paul. It's interesting because we know a little bit about maybe the context Paul found there amongst the Jews. We know from history that about a decade or so earlier, under the previous emperor Claudius, now we're under the emperor Nero, who we'll get to, but Claudius was the emperor at the time, that there had been some sort of a riot that broke out amongst the Jews in Rome under Claudius, and that Claudius had temporarily expelled all of the Jews from Rome. And by this point, probably a decade or so later, those Jews had been allowed to come back in under a new emperor, Nero. The riot that happened about a decade previously was because of what a Roman historian labels as a figure named Christus. Um, There's some speculation that it may be a slight misspelling of Christos, the Lord that those Jews would have been discussing as Christ himself. We're not positive, but it's possible that a riot could have broken out amongst the Jews over the preaching of Christ that led to their expulsion from Rome. Now, under Nero, apparently those Jews have come back. But as you can sort of imagine, just 10 years in the future, they're probably not too keen on stirring up another big rebellion and getting themselves kicked out of the city over it. By this point, Nero was beginning to show signs of his insanity. If you've ever watched a History Channel documentary about Nero, you'll pick up all the details you need to about Nero without me giving them to you. But he wasn't the greatest of Roman rulers that Rome had had, and he sure turned loose a devastating persecution on Christians, not too far from the future from where we are. What seems to be the context that Paul finds himself in is a careful balance. The Jews aren't really keen on this sect of Christians, but they're not wanting to stir something up that's going to put themselves in trouble either. There seems to be a kind of agreement that Paul will be allowed to go on preaching without their stepping in the way of it. Although few of them receive Paul's message, Paul's given the open window to continue teaching, even amongst the Jews, a thing that he's very rarely had in many other places he's been. So, while not all the Jews buy Paul's message, they give him room to go on teaching and growing and building this sect of Christianity in Rome. And then we come to the final image, just a couple of sentences. The final image at the end of Acts is really a fascinating one. Luke seems to work every detail to show the complicated and interwoven risks, at the same time the opportunities that Paul finds himself in. He's both imprisoned but also free in this Roman house. He's on trial, but offered peace by the people who have put him on trial, the Jews. He's challenged, but at the same time welcomed in a place like Rome. We know from Paul's letters and later on in church history that this precarious balance that Paul finds himself in of peace and opportunity in Rome will not last forever. Eventually, church history tells us that Paul would be executed 
probably under the direct order of Nero himself. And it's most likely that Luke knows this. Luke is writing probably after the time. He's probably not stopped writing while Paul's in prison in Rome. He's writing much later knowing that Paul would ultimately meet the end of his life in Rome under this emperor Nero. So Luke has a really interesting challenge when it comes to wrapping up this massive two-volume story of Luke and Acts. How should he end the book? That might seem like an easy question. Well, you end the story where the story ends, right? So how does the story end? That's what Luke should record. But where is the ending in this story? Is the ending of the Luke-Acts story really the death of Paul? The thing we would like to know a little more detailed about. Thank you very much. Paul's been so much a part of this story. Wouldn't you like to know how Paul's life ends? But Luke doesn't give us that. He stops short of it. Does this story really end with Paul? Has this really been Paul's story? Well, the answer is hardly. So much of this story has been how God is at work, building and spreading his good news, his kingdom. So this question of how to end the story is one that Luke must have spent some time thinking about. Every writer and any person who's attempting to create some work inevitably has to deal with when to stop. When are you finished? What is the end of the project? How do you write the last sentence? What do you say by choosing the sentence that you do? You have to land this story somewhere to write the final word and to put the final period on it. You get one last sentence. Uh, I did a little calculating this week. The original Greek didn't have punctuation, so this isn't 100% precise. But if you take the verse numbers, which are much later, I understand, but it gives you some context, and you add up all of the verses in Luke and all of the verses in Acts, the book of Luke has 1,151 verses. The book of Acts has 1,006 verses. So combined, Luke has written a two-volume work with 2,151 verses or sentences, if you will, That's massive. The two books together have 37,933 words, almost 38,000 words. And it all comes down to one sentence. You don't get three or four endings to try out. You write one last sentence to wrap up these two books. And this is the way that Luke chooses to do it. He, Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance, period. The last sentence. I think what Luke does is end the book of Acts with a kind of freeze frame. I don't know if you feel this, but it's not Paul's death. The story stops almost mid-story with Paul speaking, preaching, presenting the gospel in Rome, welcoming all who came, proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about Jesus Christ, and doing all of it in boldness and without hindrance. It's an image, the last image of the book of Acts, proclaiming and teaching freely in Rome, the capital of the empire, the same empire that would go on persecuting Christians who would crucify Jesus, mocking him as the king of the Jews. And yet here the final image is of Paul in the very capital city proclaiming that king freely and boldly. The irony and the amazing image is powerful enough, but Luke's ending, I think, does something even bigger. It's not just the image of Paul, it's the effect that this open ending, this sort of lack of an ending, has on us as readers. Here's how one commentator put it that I think is better than I could have. Acts may or may not have been written to serve a particular purpose in relation to Paul, 
But the real hero of the whole book is, of course, the Jesus who was enthroned as the world's Lord at the beginning and is now proclaimed at the end openly and unhindered. That is, with all boldness and with nobody stopping him. Jesus of Nazareth, Messiah and Lord, through his servants, through their journeys and their trials, through their pains and their puzzles and their sufferings and their shipwrecks, still reaching out into the future, out beyond Rome and the first century, out across the tracks of time and geography, still confronting men and women and children and rulers and disabled people and local authorities and artisans and governors of islands and wandering tent makers, philosophers in marketplaces and young men nodding off in windowsills. Luke has brought them all before us in a dazzling display of both writing and theology, drawing us in, reminding us once more that it is a drama in which we ourselves have been called to belong to the cast. This journey is ours. The trials and the vindications are ours. The sovereign presence of Jesus is ours. The story is ours to pick up and to carry on. Luke's writing, like Paul's journey, has reached its end. But in his end is our beginning. Luke leaves this story, I think, intentionally unfinished. The ending hangs open. Mid-act, Paul preaching. Not quite sure what all will come of it. The final word that's given is one of opportunity. As a reader, we're left wondering, what do we do with this story? What do we do with this ending? Um, Every once in a while, you'll run across a book, a novel, or a movie that's like this, where it comes to the final closing scene, and you say, I don't quite get it. (laughs) What just happened? I don't understand how that wrapped up. And normally what happens is you find yourself a little bit annoyed by it, and then you go lay down to go to sleep, and you can't get it out of your head. You lay there wondering at night, well, how should it have ended? Or what should have happened to that character? Or why didn't they end it this way? The effect that it has is it pulls you into the story in a way that a simple conclusion never possibly would. It's the thing that keeps you laying in bed thinking about it that they're exactly trying to do. Here's how one author explains this little trick that gets used on us. The well-worn formula, beginning, middle, and end, is the default mode for pretty much all of the commercial and literary novels and movies that currently jostle for ascendancy on our bookshelves. We like our entertainment to make immediate sense. Or if it doesn't at first, it should explain all of itself at the end. But I would argue there is something crucial lacking in this formula. The power of ambiguity, which nobody likes, by the way, right? Life isn't like the narratives that make up the majority of our novels and movies. Or like the well-rehearsed scenes we enjoy at the theater. It's more complicated than that. Steeped in confusion, dead ends, blank spaces, and broken fragments... It's baffling at times, annoying, and perpetually open-ended. Isn't that a good description of what life so often feels like? Occasionally, you find books and movies that want to highlight this ambiguity rather than explain it away or wrap it all up in some simple conclusion. They want to force you to walk away thinking about it, wrestling with it, figuring out what to do with it. Because most of our lives are far more defined by this ambiguity than the simple conclusions that some stories give us. I love that author's line, Perpetual, o- perpetually open-ended, which is what so much of life feels like. 
Whatever concludes today is still left open-ended tomorrow, never quite resolved. Life feels that way. There's actually a similar thing musicians will sometimes do. Um, If they want to keep a song in your head and want to keep you thinking about it, one of the tools that they can employ is a fade-out. The song gradually and slowly fades to a conclusion. Believe it or not, there's actually science behind some of this, and there was a scientific study that was done, and they had listeners tap along with the beat of a song. And what they did was they measured how long they would tap based on if the song ended abruptly or had a fade-out. And what they found is that for songs that had an exact ending, people would normally stop tapping about a second and a half before the song ended. But on songs with a fade-out, gradually fading to silence, people tended to tap a second and a half after the song had actually ended and concluded. It supports what people had thought, that this sort of technique, this little tool that musicians have, producers, is that it forces our brain to continue hearing the music even after the music has stopped. It puts it in our heads and keeps us thinking about it a little bit longer than it actually exists. We continue the song in our heads, which a good example, you remember the Beatles song, Hey Jude? Uh, That song is 7 minutes and 11 seconds long, but 4 minutes of it, more than half the song is a fade-out. It just goes on and on and on and on for minutes, right? Uh, It's a perfect example because try listening to that song and not having it stuck in your head for the rest of the day if you listen to the entire four minutes of it fading out. You can't help but carry that song on even after it's ended. I think Luke does something very similar with the book of Acts. There's no ending to this story, but it's a story that seems to sort of open itself up to us stepping in and continuing. It puts itself in our heads and leaves us wondering, What does happen to Paul? What does happen to this story in Rome? What does happen to these Jews who go on unbelieving, but Paul's hope that one day they will come to receive Christ the Messiah? What happens to this mission, this dream that Paul had to carry the gospel on to Spain and other parts of the unknown world? What we do by this ending is pick the story up. We continue thinking about it and walk away with it. It ends up being ours as much as it was theirs. And Luke wanted to make sure that this story wasn't something that we could easily close the book on and walk away from. There is no final moment, no simple conclusion, because it's Luke's way of saying that this story is still unfolding. And walking away with it in our heads is just a little taste of how Luke expects us to walk away with it in our lives, carrying this story on into our own I think the most fair thing to do with a story like this and the way it concludes is to ask ourselves a very simple question, one that Luke was pointing us to. (laughs) One point sermon today, so one question I want you to walk away with. Do you want in on this story? I think that's the thing Luke was driving at. What is your place in this story? I don't mean that abstractly as like, well, yes, I'm now a Christian because of what Paul did. I mean it as personally as possible. Every person is given a place in the story of Acts. And to every person who reads this last sentence, the opportunity of that open ending is presented to you. What will you do with this story? How will you step into it and continue what is yet to be fully ended? I've tried to point this out over and over as we've worked through the book of Acts. Acts is not a story about heroes. As much as you might imagine, it's not the story of Christianity's greatest men and greatest women. Luke tries to show us that Acts is a story about us. 
It's one of servant girls and tired congregants falling asleep in services, of parents with sick children desperate for a healing, of those who are in power struggling against the injustice and the difficult challenges of power, and also of those with no power or influence being crushed beneath those injustices. It's the story of midnight prayers and noonday speeches, of those afraid and those filled with hope, of those who find themselves bold and courageous, and also those who are called upon to make incredible sacrifices. It's a story of people, people like us, in churches like ours, believing and struggling and hoping like us. And so the ending hangs open because it reminds us that we are a part of where this story is going. As the author of Hebrews put it, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, stories like these and acts, let us now throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us, I might add, too, run with perseverance the race marked out before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart, as we too live out these stories, acts, in our own day. Nothing at the end of the story can hinder the gospel from being preached to the whole world. There's no ruler that would put a stop to it, no violence that could silence it, no storm that would shipwreck it and abandon it at sea, no serpent that could poison it to death. Acts concludes with the realization that the gospel will be preached, the gospel will be proclaimed, that faith will be carried to all the nations, and then the realization that we are the ones called to participate in doing it. That the story is open because that task is ours. Don't be afraid. Maybe that's the first thing to say. We have this confidence that this will happen because of what we've read here. That this is God's story. The Spirit's story. The Spirit pulling us into participation with it. But you're always given the option at the end of Acts of closing the book and walking away from it. Of seeing this story as something that happened back then to those people so different than the world we live in or the lives that we have. You can reject it. You can say you want nothing to do with it and go about living your own life. Or, just as easily, I think you can sort of disengage from it due to a kind of dispassion that doesn't recognize just how much is at stake. You may go on saying that you believe and receive everything of Acts, but not make the connection that now you are a part of that Acts, a part of that story, called into its participation. How small it is that we so often imagine faith participating in what God is doing as some private thing that we do, some prayer that we pray at some point in life, and then go on hoping for heaven someday and going about the rest of living on our own terms with our own ideas. We say a silent prayer and count ourselves saved and then go about our business. But when we read books like Acts and reach the end, we realize there is no going about our business any longer. That to receive this book is to receive the calling of it, to participate in it, to take up this work in this story, still unfinished. Luke wants to shake you out of this tendency to go about your own business and to help you recognize that everything, as dramatic as it's been for Paul, is now yours. 
the same God, the same hope, the same spirit, the same sacrifices, the same striving, the same endurance. Following Jesus is so much more than we tend to recognize. And all of the joy, all of the excitement, the passion of this story, it's left to us to continue. Christianity, according to Acts, is not just a set of beliefs. What we receive when we receive Christ is not just doctrine or a club that now has certain rules and restrictions to keep membership. Christianity is a kingdom, a king, a king who's leading rebellion against the ways of this world. It's a revolution that's taking place in cities and homes and governments and occupations. And what we receive is an invitation to participate with all of its risks and all of its challenges, all of its costs and all of its hopes and expectations. What I hope happens this morning as we close in worship, as we say our prayer, as we shake a few hands and head towards lunches, as we walk away from the final verse of the book of Acts and anticipate new books and more studies in the weeks to come, what I hope we don't walk away from is the sense of what we have received and what we have been called to do from this book. Acts is our story. As individuals, as a church, as believers, it's the story of how God is continuing to go forth, a new kingdom coming, and our place as characters being found in this story. Paul's story doesn't come to an end. It gets passed on to you, and I mean that as personally as possible. You individually are left to decide, what will I do with this story that I've inherited? You are a part of the greatest story that's ever been told on earth. You have a part in it. By receiving it, you have a calling, a responsibility, a place in this story, a work to be taken up. My prayer for us as a church is as we close this book, we would recognize what we have because of it the hope, the confidence, the courage, but also the responsibility of it, the sacrifices that we're called to make, the things that we're asked to do, the calling, the vocation that we now live out because of it. Paul's work is our work. The church in Acts is now the church here, Bintoak, Springfield, Missouri, one of those places the Spirit is doing its work. And so to each of us, we pick up acts and recognize this is who we are, by the Spirit's calling, by those who have gone before us. I want to leave us with that this morning. What is your place in this story, and what will you receive and do with it? Let's close in prayer, and we're going to worship this morning. Heavenly Father, we're incredibly grateful this morning for what we have received God, we've received the revelation that you came, that you did what we in no way could ever do, that you paid the price for our sins, suffered in our place, that you were resurrected, overcoming death, the first resurrection of a great resurrection to come, paid for at your body and your blood. And God, we've seen how so many that received that message first, men and women and children, in hostile cities, and pagan cities, with governments against them, with local religious leaders against them, how they received by faith 
this message of your salvation. And God, as far back as some of those stories are, we recognize the same way that your spirit works in us today. We know the same call that that spirit has to receive you as our king, as our savior. We find in these stories of Acts something we resonate deeply with. The suffering, the sacrifice, the pain, the prayers, but also the hope and the joy and the excitement of being a part of what you are doing. So this morning, Lord, we we come before you simply saying we don't want to walk away from this, but we want to take our place in this story, this long line of men and women who have served you faithfully, who have sacrificed for you, who have shared in your suffering, and who have witnessed your kingdom coming and spreading all over this world to the ends of the earth. God, so much about that promise in Acts is still unfinished people to reach, places for your gospel to go, jobs and careers and families where that truth still needs to be proclaimed. And we recognize this morning that by your spirit, you call us into that story. God, forgive us for how often we receive these things and then go about our own business. How often we fail to see our place. How often we fail to see what's been done to earn this place that we now have so we receive it this morning with gratitude for your sacrifice for men and women like Paul and all of the other figures who have brought this gospel to places like this that we live today that we might hear and receive this news and so God we take up the work as individuals as a church as members of your body God pour your spirit out on us give us gifts strengths, abilities to stand in courage without hindrance and proclaim you as our hope, the resurrection to come, you our Messiah, our King. God, by your spirit, give us boldness to do it. Let us live in this world with courage to be different and set apart from it, that those around us might see something in this community unique, something about us different from the world. And that, God, we would be faithful, faithful to speak on your behalf, faithful to live out this kingdom that we've received, faithful to worship you and acknowledge you as our king and our hope and find our place in this great cloud of witnesses before us, God. How blessed are we to have received it, God. Let us be faithful to the work you put before us. We do it in your power and by your presence and in the hope we have in you. And We worship you this morning as a sign of it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.